grace. How amazing this idea. That when I was a sinner, God saved a wretch like me. That my relationship with Jesus is founded upon a blessed favor I cannot earn. A favor that never once have I ever deserved. How amazing that my right standing, this status in heaven, has been given to me. That it's not and never will be based upon my merit or my deservingness, but solely upon the sacrifice, the offering, and the work of Jesus. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It's with this in mind that I'm often grieved, deeply really, when I hear of the freedom that is found in this blessed doctrine being blamed when a person falls into sin. Since grace will never lead a person to sin, disobedience cannot and never will be evidence of a person taking grace too far, but failing to take grace far enough. And yet, if all that I am and Christ exists because of His work and not my own, it's only logical, natural, to then wonder what is the role of obedience in the life of a believer? Does grace void a Christian of any type of personal responsibility? Does it excuse you from any practical involvement? If I don't need to obey for God to love me and bless me, then why obedient at all? While most Christians will agree that God's grace is the motivation for our obedience, sadly, the similarities often in there. You see, there are some who preach that the blessed life offered in Christ Jesus can only be really discovered through a blending of, yes, God's grace, but also with our obedience to do certain things or to abstain from certain things. These folks will argue a salvation, yes, by grace, but then they stress the importance of our obedience for sanctification, becoming more like Christ in order to receive the blessings in favor of God. On one extreme side of the same position, it's ironic, you'll find movements like the health and wealth movement or prosperity gospel, Joel Osteen, and whatnot. Again, ironically, the exact same gospel perversion of grace on the other end of the same spectrum will also justify religious fundamentalism or legalistic traditionalism. Sadly, aside from the fact that this position is not biblical, this what I call a grace and do these things, or grace but don't do these things outlook, ends up making or turning or warping the blessings of God by making them contingent on our obedience and not solely based upon the goodness of God, or what I would say is grace, period. This morning, I want to discuss obedience, and specifically its relation and role in the life of a believer in relation to God's amazing grace. And to do this, I want to use a fascinating story that's recorded for us in John chapter 4. This story will kind of be our, our backdrop to examine, to discuss, to unpack this topic. John chapter 4, we'll start with verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where 
John tells us, he had made the water into wine at this wedding. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Geographically, all of this is around the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is why it's called the, the, the region of Galilee. Cana was considered largely in part kind of a suburb on the outskirts of Capernaum. So it's all in the same geographic area. So when he, he had heard, this nobleman, that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, so Jesus had left Jerusalem, had come back down to the Jordan River Valley, had made his way back up into the Galilee. So the man hears that Jesus has returned from Jerusalem, a trip that he had made to celebrate Passover with his disciples. This nobleman, whose son was sick, went to Jesus and implored him to come down and to heal his son. And then we're told, for his son was at the point of death. Uh, Let's begin by establishing what we know about this certain nobleman. First, the Greek word we have written as nobleman can be translated into the English as kingsman. It's likely this man was uh, an advisor or some type of an officer uh, serving in an official capacity for King Herod. Herod was the man that the Romans had given jurisdiction over the region of Galilee. In Capernaum, being the kind of the capital of the region, the headquarters for King Herod's, uh, you know, kind of, kind of out, uh, like his outposting, it, it, it all ties together that this man was connected in such a way. With that in mind, and why that's important, is that it tells us this, this kingsman, this nobleman, was likely both wealthy and connected. He was influential. As the story will develop, we'll come to see that the man owned servants, which substantiates this position further. In many ways, his his status within the king's court afforded him really the kind of life that was generally insulated from many of the the normal hardships of the commoner, the common man. This man was was in the, the aristocracy. He was higher up. He was immune to things. So we know this about the nobleman, wealthy, influential. The second thing we can note from the text is that He was also a father, and we're told specifically of a young boy. In verse 47, this word that's translated as son, it's nondescript. It just implies the male gender. But then the the word used for child in verse 49 tells us that the boy was very young in age, likely was an infant, was a toddler. And there's no doubt, I can imagine, that his son, his newborn son, this little tyke, was the apple of his father's eye. Thirdly, we know that this man was facing a a very personal trial. A a trial, in fact, of such proportions that the man is very desperate. Though it's true that noblemen were largely immune from the challenges facing the commoner, no position, no influence, no clout, no money could insulate him from one thing, sickness. Tragically, John tells us that the young man's son was at the point of death. Sad. In actuality, by the nobleman's later admission to Jesus, it seems that all were quite certain the boy was going to die, that his death was kind of inevitable. Not only is that heartbreaking, but we're told in verse 52 that the little man, he was suffering from specifically a high fever. And in the Greek, the word fever, um, I I love the way it translates, It's, it's a fiery heat. Yeah, as a father of three youngins myself, I can tell you there's nothing worse in the world of having a young child sick. It's worse still when the child has a fever. 
Like when they're little, little guys, man, they, they can't tell you what's wrong. They can't articulate where it's hurting. It leaves you as a parent to guess, to wonder. Fever is particularly brutal. To hold a child, not knowing exactly what's going on, this failure to communicate, feeling them burning up in your arms, to see sweat followed by bone-twisting chills. It's, it's ter- if you're a parent, ch- young children with a fever, it's a terrible thing. Yeah, as you can reason, this Kingsman, because he had considerable means and power, influence, I'm sure that by this point, by the time he's introduced to us in our story, I mean, he's exhausted his, res- his resources. He's reached out to the best medical care that was available. He and his wife had consulted with the best doctors. They'd visited specialists. They'd gotten second opinions, third ones. They tried various treatments, been visited even by the local rabbi, prayed over, had round-the-clock nurses, but all of this was to no avail. Now, most men tend to be problem solvers. So having a sick child that you can't do anything for hits a man even at a deeper level. Like the inability to do anything, to com- it just compounds this man's torment. I, I can imagine, and I think it would be safe, it's an assumption, but this guy probably had cried out at some point to God in the darkness, asking God to just take the sickness and put it on him. Again, if you're a dad, you've prayed those prayers before. But the diagnosis... It was terminal. Like no one at this point knew what to do. The kid is suffering. This is hopeless. And finally, the very fact that the nobleman ends up going to Jesus when he had heard that Jesus had come, from, come back from Judea to Galilee, it tells us in not so many words that, that the man at some level had a firsthand knowledge of Jesus and his ministry. Now, whether this man had, had personally, maybe he had been at the wedding and seen the, the miracle of transforming the water into wine. Maybe he had seen Jesus' miraculous power manifest in other ways. Again, Capernaum is where Jesus' headquarters were. He spent a lot of time there. So maybe the man had a, a firsthand uh, exposure, or maybe he had just heard. I mean, by this juncture, there is quite a, a gossip mill circulating about Jesus and the things that he was doing. Regardless, the man knows enough. He hears Jesus has gotten back to town, and he springs into action. Now, as John recalls the scene, like, he makes no mention of what Jesus was doing, uh, only the desperation of the nobleman. That's the focus. John tells us that he goes to Jesus. He implores Jesus to come and heal his son. Well, this man had enough knowledge of Jesus to believe that Jesus had the power to heal his son, which should be commended, right? You don't ask someone to come heal your son if you don't believe they can heal your son. Like the only issue here in this man's mind is whether or not he could convince Jesus to come to Capernaum, to leave Cana, to come just across town. We're not given any of the details of his appeal. But you can reckon that nothing was off limits, right? Like I'm sure that he offered Jesus money. You need some money? Beginning of your ministry? Hey, how about some political influence? A get-out-of-jail-free card? Whatever you need. I just need you to come. I need you to heal my son. This guy probably made promises. Jesus, if you come and you do this, I I will be a better man. In the Greek, the word that's translated as implored, he implored Jesus. It's better stated as he begged. Like this man's son is dying. He's out of options. 
And so he comes and he begs for Jesus' help. Now keep in mind, in his desperation, this man, he didn't care what anyone thought of him. Like his need trumped his pride. This man, a nobleman, a man of position, of clout, of wealth, he draws up his fancy robes, robes reserved for dignitaries. He dispenses of the pleasantries, the formalities. I mean, he is on his face begging Jesus unashamedly. And that culture, such a man resorting to beggary, it was unheard of. In fact, for those standing there, it would have been kind of a shocking display. And yet, by this point, the circumstances the man had been facing had stripped him of any hubris, stripped him of any decorum. Time was of the essence. And he saw Jesus as his final hope. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So the nobleman said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. Now that's kind of an, kind of an interesting exchange. And, and I'll admit that Jesus' response here does kind of come across being a little insensitive. Like, especially in the light of the man's desperate situation, he's lying there prostrate before the Lord. He's begging him to come, and not do him a favor, but to heal his young child. But you need to realize that while what Jesus says, might, you might kind of wonder over, it, it, it's designed to articulate a very important point. Like in making this statement, unless and, and notice, you people, this is not directed just at the man, you people, this is plural. See signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. You see, what Jesus is doing here, and there's a little bit of larger context to the flow of the book itself, but Jesus is issuing a rebuke of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And in issuing this rebuke, he's giving the man a bit of a challenge. And all of this, by the way, comes within the context of a recent experience that Jesus had traveling from Judea back to Galilee, going through the region of Samaria, where he stopped at a well. The disciples go in to buy food. A Samaritan woman comes out. The woman at the well. It's a beautiful story recorded at the first half of John 4. But at the end of it, all of the Samaritans came and they believed in Jesus. So Jesus is saying some things that are important. You see, the Galileans had received Jesus because of signs and wonders that they had seen him perform. But by this point in John's Gospel, they hadn't believed in Jesus for who he was, the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. That being said, in contrast, Jesus in Samaria, in Samaria performed no miracles, no signs, no wonders, but we're told, John says, that they believed. They believed why? They believed that Jesus was the Christ and the Savior because of his word. Is Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So you had Jesus performing these signs and wonders in Israel. They were not believing in him as the Christ. Jesus does no signs and wonders in Samaria, and they accept him as the Christ solely based upon the power of his word. You see, Jesus here is condemning. This is all targeted to this man. We'll see. He's condemning a faith-based system that relies only on what a person sees. He's condemning that. But he's also illustrating the truth that greater faith is demonstrated when a person just hears God's word and acts accordingly. 
When a person doesn't need miracles, doesn't need signs, doesn't need wonders, they hear God's word, they take it to heart, they believe it, they trust in it, and they act. That is the greater faith. This is why, in response to this man, again, back to the scene there, begging Jesus to come before his child dies. You can feel the desperation there. Jesus then says to him, he says, go, go your way. Your son lives. Now, right from the beginning, you should note that Jesus is seeking here to correct a misconception behind the man's original request. And therefore, in correcting the misconception, expand the man's understanding of who Jesus actually was. So what were the misconceptions? Now, the nobleman rightly believed that Jesus had the power to heal his son, to be commended, right? That being said, the man falsely believed, it was a misconception, that Jesus had to be present in order to perform such a miracle. Like, did Jesus have to physically go to Capernaum to heal the man's son, or could he do it right there? He didn't have to physically be present. That was a misconception of the man limiting how he saw Jesus. The other misconception of this nobleman was that the miracle was somehow dependent upon a specific timetable. Like, again, the man implores Jesus to what? Come before the child dies. <laughs> As we know of Jesus, and it's illustrated in his resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus would still be able to heal him even after he had died. Like, not only did Jesus have to be present, the boy could die and Jesus could still heal him. Again, some misconceptions of the man's understanding of the full power behind Jesus. Now, what's essential to understand about Jesus' statement to this desperate man is that he is giving him a very incredible promise that he's wanting the man to trust. Like Jesus, he calms his fears. The man's worried that his son could die at any moment. So he says, your son lives. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Your son's alive. He's, he's, he's okay. Your son, more accurately translated, is not just fine, but in the Greek, he's going to be okay. He'll be okay. Your son lives. That's a promise. You know, promises. Promises are only really as good or as sure as the person making them, right? Like, I could promise you a million bucks. It's a poor promise. Because if you know me, I don't have a million dollars. Promises are only as sure as the person making the promise. And in light of this fact, I mean, the nobleman, he has limited exposure to Jesus. He believes that Jesus can heal his son. There's some misconceptions clouding how he's viewing it. But the promise, it not only demands from him a, an improbable measure of faith, but it challenges how he's viewing Jesus, right? The man wants Jesus to physically come to his home and heal his dying son. Instead, Jesus equips him with a promise, sends him on his way. And the crux of the situation really centers on whether or not this man at this point is going to believe that Jesus' word could be trusted. He has to make that decision, right? When Jesus says to him, your son lives, I'm sure there's a lot of things going on in his brain, as it would with you, right? Questions swirling around. Like, how can he know that? How can it be true? On what authority can he make such a claim? Can I really trust what he's saying? Is his word reliable? Can I believe him? Like in the moment, the man is left with a really profound choice. 
He can choose to believe Jesus' word and the promise he'd just been given and obey by going home. Or he could doubt what Jesus has said, doubt the promise, fail to believe, and really remain hopeless without any type of remedy. Now, as a Christian, I'm sure you know the importance of believing in God's word and trusting in his promises. But let me ask, do you know why that is the greatest form of faith? Greater than a faith based upon signs and wonders that you see? You see, friend, believing in God's word and specifically trusting in the promises that God has given to you through his word and then acting accordingly It's a greater faith for one reason. Same with this man. It requires faith in the person of God. Do you trust him as a person? A promise is only good as the one making it, right? I mean, think about it. In the appeal for this nobleman to believe, to trust, to place his confidence in his word, it was akin to Jesus asking the man to do what? Will you believe me? Will you believe in me? Will you trust in me? In the end, the man had two important determinations that he had to make about Jesus. Limited exposure, little bit limited knowledge, but he had to ask himself really two things. First, did Jesus have the power to heal his son apart from being physically present? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you believe that he has the power to heal your son there, he could probably do it without being present. Like you, Intellectually, you could maybe make that, that leap. The second question, though, is more personal. Would Jesus make a promise to me right now that wasn't true? Maybe think of it as a, a different way. The man had to determine two things. Was Jesus able? And secondly, was he the type of man that would make a false promise to a desperate man? Let's dive back in verse 50. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Those three words, I'm sure, were powerful. Then he inquired of them the hour when his son got better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. There are some scholars, Bible commentaries, who will contend that the miracle here, the miracle in this story, really centers upon Jesus' supernatural ability to know that the child had gotten better. As if the miracle was really kind of a word of knowledge. And while I, I would assume that there is some merit to this position, I mean, apart from the supernatural, how would Jesus know the boy was alive? That the boy would be fine? Such an outlook kind of fails to give Jesus, I think, his full due. Again, notice that when the nobleman receives word from his servant that the child had indeed pulled through, the fever had broken, what does he do? He inquires, he asks, what hour did he get better? When did this happen? Like, in the Greek when he got better, can be translated as when he began to mend. Like, the idea is that he's asking, guys, when did my son start to turn the corner? 
Like, like when did things begin to, to start to get better? Now, that's his question. But it's the response now of the servants to the question that's really telling and I think insightful to what happens here. They reply, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, this phrase, left him, it's literally the fever was sent away. Like, there was no turning the corner. There was no slow mend and getting better. It was, there was a moment that the fever was gone. He was sick. He was trembling. He was cold. He was burning up. And then, boom. What's up, guys? He was good. No gradual progression. It was an immediate. The boy was near death, and in an instant, the fever was gone. Now, sadly, I, th- I think that this is where most of the commentary on this passage kind of ends up rolling off the rails. And in doing so, ends up, I don't think intentionally, but it still does, ends up warping the relationship between the blessing of the boy being healed and this man's obedience to God's word, which was good. Let me, let me kind of set up the thought here by asking a very simple but important question that many get wrong about the passage. When was the boy healed? Again, there are those that will use this story to emphasize the essential importance of obedience. When it comes to a person experiencing the blessings of God, obeying God's word, trusting in God's promises, were absolutely paramount for this boy to be healed. They will answer this question by claiming that the boy was healed the very moment the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went to return home. So they will say it was obedience that initiated the healing. Regrettably, that's not exactly what the text says happens. Notice that when the man leaves, he leaves Jesus, he begins the trek home, he runs into his servants, right? They're coming to inform him the boy was fine. He receives the incredible news. The nobleman inquires the moment the fever left his son. He has an exchange with the servants. They get their, their pocket sundials. They're coordinating it. And then what's the nobleman's determination? Was it the moment he believed? Not according to what he said. He determined it was the same hour that Jesus said to him, your son lives. Like, Don't miss that. The man's inquiry leads him to the realization That when Jesus had spoken those three words, your son lives, in that moment, the fever left and his son was healed. That's how the nobleman determined the situation. Incredibly, the way in which John sets up the story tells us that the miracle of the boy being healed happened when Jesus spoke and not when the man believed. The implications being that the healing of his son, the miracle here, took place before the man's obedience, which means it was independent of his actions altogether. That's kind of a very shocking idea. 
Now, obviously, we know this man possessed a genuine faith in Jesus' word, a faith that his son would, would live. We know that. Why? He was willing to act as if the miracle had occurred. He had not seen evidence, had not gotten word, but he trusted, he believed. And yes, his obedience was evidence of a real faith. But, and this is really kind of the big question that when you study this passage, at least for myself, I could never escape. Was it really the nobleman's obedience and faith in Jesus' word that yielded the healing? <laughs> Let me make my point, maybe phrasing it another way. If the nobleman had not believed, would his son have died? I know that, again, this might come across sounding controversial, but I honestly believe that the young boy would have been healed regardless of the actions of his father. Let's say, playing it out, that the man, he hears Jesus' promise, your son lives. But again, your son's going to be okay. But this man, he gets up and he scoffs. You're not going to go to, I can't believe this. A simple thing. You can't possibly know that. Let's say he scoffs at Jesus' word, and then he's like, I'm going to go try to find somebody else. Would the boy have then died? Absolutely not. In actuality, I think the story would have probably ended the exact same. At some point, the nobleman would have eventually returned home. Or maybe not that. Maybe the servants find him at his favorite bar, hammered. But at some point, they find this guy, right? And what? They're like, bro, the boy's, the boy's been healed. And then the nobleman, like, I need some coffee. He's sobering up. And he's going to set up this to find out the same inquiry. Well, when did this happen? And he's going to make the same determination, right? That it was when Jesus spoke those three words. Again, the man's obedience did not yield the blessing of God. Because the blessing of God came before the man's obedience. To remove some of the controversy, here's why I can say with complete, absolute, 100% certainty that the boy was healed the very moment Jesus spoke those three words, and therefore his healing had nothing to do with the man or his faith. According to Isaiah 55, verse 11, the scriptures declare an undeniable truth. God's word never returns void. This means if Jesus, the Son of God, uttered the words, your son lives, what would absolutely be happening? The son was going to live regardless of anything that happened next in our story, mainly the man's obedience. Don't miss this. Since Jesus said the words before he believed the word, his son's healing, the fever leaving, were not dependent upon his belief, his faith, his subsequent obedience, which leads us to a big question, doesn't it? What's the point of the story? Look back at two progressions that occur within the text. First, John tells us the man believed the word and was obedient to head home. 
But, following where the miracle had actually taken place, realizing it had been Jesus who had healed his son, we're told, the story ends, right? That he himself believed. Along with his whole household. So wait a second. If earlier in the passage we're told that he believed the word of Jesus, at the end of the story, what's he now believing? I mentioned this in the setup to the story, but this nobleman all begins, right, with a point of desperation. The story begins with him in in a place of hopelessness. (laughs) Life had thrown him a nasty curve that he couldn't catch. In light of his son's deteriorating condition, the man is desperate. What could he do? I mean, he had done everything he possibly could have thought of. Nothing had worked. His son would die. It was a guarantee, and he was powerless. That said, the truth about this nobleman was that his pressing need, a dying child, which is why he came to Jesus, right? To address a pressing need. The interesting thing is that his pressing need, a dying son, was not his core problem. Now, it's true. His son was sick. His son was likely to die. That's a terrible thing. But the reality, the truth of the reality with this man and his entire household, they were also sick with sin. And they too were going to die an eternal death. The man comes to Jesus and he needs a miracle worker. The whole point of the story is that Jesus wants him to see that I'm more than a miracle worker, I'm a savior. And that's what you actually need. Again, consider that when the man initially came to Jesus, he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world. That wasn't his confession. All he knew was that others had said Jesus could do the miraculous. That was enough for him to come. So he comes to Jesus, and he begs him to save his son. He had nothing to lose. You see, life, as it can do to all, had driven the man to a place of humility. You could say that, right? It had driven the man to his knees. But to his credit, it had driven him to his knees before Jesus. The world will drive you to your knees, but man, if you find yourself before the cross, it's not a bad place to be. You see, Jesus wanted to do more in the man's life than heal his son. Jesus wanted to reveal to the man who he was. A savior for sin. Come back to the progression, the flow of the story. The nobleman was willing to come to Jesus, not really knowing who Jesus was. Since this was the case, he's convinced Jesus would have to come back to Capernaum to heal his son. Then Jesus rebukes the people, right, for seeking signs and wonders before turning to the man and saying, go, your son lives. To the man's credit, he believed Jesus' word. But then it was only when he had come to realize that it had been Jesus who had healed his son that he came to see Jesus for who he really was. The Christ, the Savior of the world. This is why the story ends. Yes, early the man believed his word, but then he saw the miracle. He saw who Jesus was. He saw everything that happened. And he believes not just Jesus' word, but at the end he believes in Jesus. He's accepted Jesus. And not just himself, his whole household. You see, the willingness to obey Jesus' word undoubtedly 
sent this man upon a journey by which he could see the miracle and have Jesus revealed for who he actually was. But our story is clear, and this is important. It was the very moment that the man realized the miracle had taken place before he had done anything. That told him something about Jesus he couldn't escape. It's that that caused him to receive Jesus as a Savior. Let me, let me unpack that just a little. Consider, what deepens a person's faith in Jesus? Well, what deepens your faith, your love for Jesus? Is it your obedience? Is that what deepens your love for Jesus? Is that what deepens your faith in Jesus? Is it your obedience? Or, throwing this out there, is it the moments that you come to realize that Jesus' blessings for you were never dependent on your obedience? Like this man believed in God's word and he came home. Once he realized Jesus had healed his son before he had done anything, he accepts him as a savior. That's why grace changes everything. Let me try to illustrate that another way. A more personal way. How do you know, I mean really know, someone really loves you? How do you know? Do you know when their love manifests as a reciprocation to your love? You know, when you do something really nice for them, they do something really nice. Is that when you know someone really loves you? Or when you see a person's love manifesting completely independent of anything you're doing or without precondition? Is it when you earn someone's love or when that love is freely given? <laughs> Let me illustrate this. Marriage. Ladies, what is more meaningful? Your husband giving you a spa day when he returns from a two-week-long business trip or when he unexpectedly drops the kids off at grandma's so the two of you can go to the spa together after the two-week-long work trip. <laughs> Let's be real. After leaving you home alone with the kids for two weeks, a spa day is kind of a requirement. It's just what should be expected. In fact, if you didn't do such a thing, you might be in trouble. It's the least he could do. Fellas, what's better? I'm going to get in trouble. What's better? <coughs> Your wife giving in, giving you a little nookie because you begged and there just was nothing good on Netflix. Or, 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 you come home from work and you find that the wife has sent the kids off to grandma's for the night and she's gone and picked up something sexy from Sam's Club. <laughs> you see my point? When love is a reciprocation or when it's detached from precondition, what yields 
greater endearment. When Jesus works in response to your obedience, or when his blessings manifest apart from your obedience. The nobleman believed Jesus' word and he was obedient, which is good. But it was the revelation that Jesus had healed his son before he had done anything that changed his life forever. Christian, here's really the the thought-provoking component to our story. Your obedience is not the linchpin to the manifestation of God's blessings in your life. The man's son was healed before Jesus had done anything. The blessings came before his obedience. And yet, was his obedience important? Sure. Absolutely. Why? The man's decision to trust God's word, the man's decision to obey by returning home, what did it do? It expedited the process of him experiencing God's blessing that was already there. Again, if the man had wandered off, didn't trust, didn't believe, didn't obey, went and hammered himself at the bar, the blessing was still sitting out there. He's sulking in whiskey, not realizing it because he disobeyed. He didn't believe. Again, imagine if the nobleman had disobeyed Jesus' commands. Imagine if he had taken a different path. The boy would have been healed, the miracle performed, and yet it would have just taken him so much longer to experience the blessing that God had for him. Jesus worked in the man's life. His willingness to trust, to obey, enabled him to see God's work more quickly. In closing, the reason that obedience to God's word is so important in the life of a Christian is not that God's blessings are somehow contingent upon it, but that your obedience enables you to experience God's grace so much sooner than you would otherwise. We don't obey God because we have to. We obey him because we get to. And we realize in that obedience, man, I get to see the blessings of God so much more quickly than if I didn't believe and I refused and I disobeyed. Obedience, it's relation to grace. God's favor is independent of you, but your obedience will help you see God's favor so much more quickly. So Father, Lord, we just let that word sit there. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.